Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Last night, um, I wasn't here. I was teaching uh, down in the, the lower hall, but I um, had a chance to listen to Guy's talk today, which is a just a beautiful talk on dependent origination. And uh, I wanted to uh, follow up with a, a topic and use a sutta to point to the, the possibility of resting in that gap between feeling and craving and then um, acting skillfully from that place instead of unskillfully so that we don't keep on creating that wheel of samsara and more confusion and suffering. <clears throat> I wanted to, uh, to use um, the basis of the talk, a sutta by the Buddha. Actually, there'll be two suttas uh, addressing this topic. But uh, the main one that we'll start out with is from the Majjhima Nikaya. It's called the Dveda Vitaka Sutta, or two kinds of thought. <clears throat> this is number 19, if you're wanting to look up things afterwards. Actually, there's going to be a list of, of all the suttas afterwards for those studious types. <clears throat> Bhikkhus, the Buddha says, before my enlightenment, when I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, imagine just being an on, only an unenlightened bodhisattva, <clears throat> it occurred to me, suppose that I divide my thoughts into two classes. I set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, simplicity, thoughts of non-ill will, loving kindness, and thoughts of non-cruelty or compassion. <clears throat> As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of sensual desire arose in me, now, it's important to, to notice, this is just before he became enlightened. He'd been practicing pretty diligently for, for quite some time, and he actually had thoughts of sense-desire that he had to deal with. Uh, thought of sense-desire arose in me, and I understood thus, oh, this thought of sensual desire has arisen in me. This leads to my own affliction to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from nibbana, from peace. And then he noticed the same with thoughts of ill will and thoughts of cruelty, that they lead to his own affliction, others' affliction, and both. And then he said, Bhikkhus, Whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of his mind. Then he notices the same thing about the other three kinds, of, the other three classes, the second kind of thought. As I abided thus, a thought of renunciation and a thought of loving-kindness and a thought of compassion arose in me, and I understood thus, this thought of renunciation, of loving-kindness and compassion has arisen in me. These do not lead to my own affliction or to others' affliction or affliction of both. They aid in wisdom, do not cause difficulties, and lead to nibbana. Bhikkhus, whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of his mind. 
what we frequently think and ponder upon, the mind will incline towards because we are creatures of habit. And those habits will continue unless there is some strong effort to condition or train the mind and the heart to go another way. Even when we see that certain thoughts lead to affliction, our own and others, and we would think we'd know better, and we bring real dedication to learning another way, you've probably noticed it just doesn't always happen on the timetable that we hope for. It takes tremendous patience, even when we're motivated to learn another way. Now, this is contradicted by a a card that a friend recently gave me. The front of it says, deep Zen-like meditation at the push of a button, free demo cassette and special report. Meditate like a Zen monk at the push of a button. Sounds really good. Remarkable audio technology transports you effortlessly and safely into the brainwave states of deep meditation, relaxing stress relief, profound emotional healing, high-performance mental abilities, increased self-awareness. Sounds good. Experience deep Zen-like meditation makes meditation easy, accelerates results. And I'll just read one little piece. Creates happiness, inner peace, profound permanent changes at the deepest level. Now that's that's a good seller if it works, huh? <laughs> it doesn't say, it doesn't even say what it is. It just says free demo cassette and special report. You have to kind of be motivated to take the next step. But for most of us, it, it doesn't quite work that way. Change is really possible. But it's a process of change. That's why the Buddha talked in terms of walking a path in which patience is an essential paramita, essential perfection. But this Eightfold Path starts with having some idea of the possibility. This is right understanding, seeing that there is suffering and that there's a possibility of a way out of suffering. And we can get very inspired by that possibility, moved by that that idea, and that can lead to the second link of the Eightfold Path, which sometimes is uh, translated as right thought, but is also often translated as right intention, also known as right aspiration at times. And I'd like particularly to focus on this whole idea of intention because it is the key to practice. Now, there are two levels of intention that we can look at. One is in the sense of an aspiration, where we do see this possibility and direct our wholehearted effort towards this vision that we want to create. What Sylvia mentioned the other day uh, is sometimes known as clear comprehension of purpose. That when we are really clear in what our goal is, what our aim is, then everything is bent towards that goal. One inspiring line by the Buddha that, uh, that has moved me and has strengthened my intention is the Buddha's words that say, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed hatred, and delusion, 
I would not tell you to do so. Just pretty straightforward, you know. It is possible, and that is why I give these teachings. If it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. And then if you have that kind of an aspiration, if your intention is strong enough, then it leads to the whole practice of sila, right speech, right action, right livelihood, and the development of uh, the, the qualities of effort, mindfulness, and concentration. But your intention has to be sufficiently strong because it is unlearning the whole habit of, uh, of actions and thoughts that have gone up until this point in your life. I remember being around um, somebody who, it was at a Yucca Valley retreat where this um, uh, man who was leading the uh, movement session uh, was, uh, uh, was asked by somebody at the end of the session for some pointers on some difficulties that they were having and, and uh, how to work with some, some physical uh, problems. And uh, he heard her question and then gave her a, a response. And um, he, she, he said, well, you might try this, this exercise. And and she said, oh, no, 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 I couldn't do that because then, then my, uh, my knee would start to hurt. You know? And then he gave her another response, and she said, oh, no, no, I think that would be too hard for me. I, I, I don't think I like one, uh, that, that one. And then he, ga- he gave her about three or four different possibilities, but each time she kind of parried saying why that wasn't going to be a good one for her. And then he paused and he said, you know, I think your intention to stay the same is greater than your intention to change. When your intention becomes, when your intention to change becomes greater than your intention to stay the same, uh, then I think you, you might be able to change. And it was, it was very striking. There were other people around who kind of sensed that there was some resistance to this person really putting in the, the possible effort that it would take to change. Those words have stayed with me for many years. If our intention to change is greater than our intention to stay the same, we will change. And we can be motivated by some very great inspiration that just sets us on a course that we will, um, we know we have found when we found our path. This is what I'm committing myself to. So that's one level of intention, having that aspiration and vision and commitment. There's another level of intention that we can talk about as far as practice, and that is the intention that arises in every moment. Because there is intention in every moment, and how we what the source of that intention is as we meet the moment will determine whether we are causing more suffering for ourselves and falling into that trap, moving from that gap into craving, or moving towards greater freedom. Intention is one of the uh, common mental factors. There are, if, if you're not familiar with Buddhist psychology, there are 52 mental factors it's kind of like a deck of cards that you have. You know, this is the deck that, that you, everybody gets, gets all of these mental factors. There are some unwholesome factors like greed, hatred, and delusion. Some, whole, some, some wholesome factors like generosity and kindness. And then there are some factors that are neither wholesome nor unwholesome that are common in every moment. And they can be mixed with unwholesome or wholesome qualities. And intention is one of these common factors. And intention is the basis of all karma. This is from the Buddha. He says, intention, I tell you, is karma. 
intending one creates karma by way of body, speech, and mind. How we relate to this moment will create either unwholesome karma or wholesome karma. As was spoken about last night, in every moment there is Vedana, there's feeling, pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. Usually we respond to those three with, when we're not clear with grasping at the pleasant, aversion to the unpleasant, and confusion or delusion with the neutral. Those are the three sources of suffering, grasping, aversion, and delusion. If we are clear, if we are mindful, then it's possible to have the opposite intentions, non-grasping or generosity, that ability to let go, non-hatred, non-aversion, or kindness, friendliness, non-delusion, or wisdom, clarity. And those are the three sources of happiness, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. So in every moment we're cultivating karma based on what our intention is in that moment. When there are simply thoughts that are coming and going in the mind, just like the Buddha saw before he became a Buddha, there are thoughts of desire, thoughts of ill will, thoughts of cruelty. You can't stop those thoughts from coming. They just arise on their own. But when they are translated into words and translated into action, then the karmic consequence of their manifestation in those modes is much deeper. So you don't need to battle the thoughts as they come up, even if they're unwholesome ones. But seeing the emptiness of those thoughts keeps them from manifesting in ways that the karmic results are much, are much heavier. Now, there are four ways that karma is created by our action in the moment at least that I've seen. If you are responding with an unwholesome action, for instance, if you are responding with an unwholesome word, you know, say you start lashing out at somebody, it doesn't feel good in that moment. That's one aspect of the suffering that's caused by an unwholesome action. The likelihood of your responding in the future in a similar situation is reinforced. So you are practicing that habit. Just like the Buddha said, what one thinks and one ponders, one inclines towards. The energy that comes back to you is probably not going to be very pleasant if you are putting out unwholesome and um, unpleasant energy, it comes back to you sooner or later. And also, when you reflect upon things that you've done that have been unwholesome or said that have been unwholesome, how does it feel? You probably had a few days to come up with a memory or two of something unwholesome that you've done, right? maybe one or two. And when you think of it, ooh, and you shudder and you cringe, right in that moment is another aspect of that unwholesome um, karma uh, manifesting. Now, the converse is true as well. When you respond with a wholesome intention and it manifests as words or 
actions, again, you are reaping wholesome karma in four ways. Suppose you do something very thoughtful and considerate for somebody. It feels good in that moment if it's truly a spontaneous and and kind act without looking for a hook or a payoff, but just you're moved. Every now and then we do get moved in that way. It feels good in the moment. Because it feels good, you remember how it feels and the likelihood of that arising in a future condition is greater. So you are reinforcing, you're inclining the mind that way. The energy that comes back to you from those around you is probably going to be matching that. Think of somebody who you know who's really generous and kind. How are you around them? You, you want to be kind back to them. You just You beget that kind of energy. And when you think back on a wholesome deed that you've done, how does it feel? feels good, doesn't it? Mm, wow. In fact, it's one of the bases of sending yourself loving kindness because it does feel so good and uplifting. <clears throat> so, while we're practicing here, we are inclining the mind with those wholesome seeds that we're planting. You come down to your cushion or your chair and you can have the intention to be present. Sometimes it's, it's good to start a sitting with that intention or whatever intention inspires you. Oh, may I be as present as I can in this sitting. Having that intention will incline the mind towards that Um, that possibility. Now, as you've seen, it doesn't always work. You can have the intention, the best of intentions. May I be really mindful this sitting and boom, you're gone. Two seconds later. That does not matter because karma does not operate on our own schedule. But the key thing to understand is when you plant that intention, when you plant that seed, the likelihood of it manifesting as well as the likelihood of you planting it in the future is greater. And if you can realize that, then every time you see your mind wandering, instead of getting discouraged and beating yourself up, if you simply recommit to plant that intention again, there it is. You're doing your part. That's all you need to do. Be as present as you can, and when you see you've gone, come back and once again plant another seed of mindfulness with that intention. That's also how it works with the loving-kindness practice. You know, you're doing loving-kindness or somebody is guiding in loving-kindness, you know, may I be happy, may I be filled with love, and you just feel filled with rage, you know, (laughs) cold-hearted, you know, I'll never be loving again, I know it, you know. That's what the mind might say, especially if you do a loving-kindness retreat, it's humbling, you know. The first time I did a loving-kindness retreat, God, I thought of all the most disgusting things I had ever done in my life. They kept on coming up one after another for days and days, you know. Really, may I be kind, may I be loving, and then I'd think of this really awful thing that I did, you know. I, at, at one point, it got so bad, I said, okay, These are all coming. How many really bad things have I done in my life? And I thought if I could, I'd name the top 20 awful things that I did. I only got up to 17. I was so grateful on that awful, awful order, you know. Okay. It was so humbling. 
I thought, oh, this is, this is not working. This is, you know, something's going wrong here. But actually what happens is it's a purification. It lifts all the yuck, you know, like the old, uh, remember the uh, Ajax commercial, like, you know, foaming cleanser, you know, and you can feel the, the dirt lift, you know, from the, from the porcelain sink, you know. It lifts it. It's a purification that happens and there you get to see all the things that get in the way of a loving heart. And if you simply can meet that with kindness, with compassion, in that space the purification occurs. And then all you need to do is once again plant the, the seed of a loving heart, that well-wishing. And it's amazing. It really works. By the end of that retreat, I, I got into, I touched a really kind, loving heart, much to my amazement. And over the course of, of doing metta uh, in, in other instances, in an intensive practice, at first it could seem really mechanical. Okay, may I be safe from harm? May I be right? Yeah, may I be... <laughs> Happy, yeah, good luck, you know, just, you know, maybe. But I, I would just keep on planting it, and even though it seems like it's automatic and rote, after a while, it's like, you know, planting seeds in a garden. It doesn't look like much is happening, but you keep on watering those seeds, and they start to sprout and bloom into something extraordinarily beautiful. And it's not that you are such a wonderful person, it's just that you're nourishing that intention and after a while with that sincere commitment, it manifests. The same way with uh, having the intention to, um, to work with precepts in our life, both here on retreat or in our, uh, in our daily life. When we have the intention to live according to the precepts, something that starts to happen is when you're about to do something that's questionable and maybe breaking a precept, there's something in your mind that says, wait a second, what's going on here? Now you might go ahead and break the precept, okay? But that pause that allows you to see if you're very, very attentive to it, it gives you another possibility than your natural habit pattern. And each time you recommit to that intention, it will be a stronger break before you manifest it. The way that mindfulness works here on, uh, on retreat is that Although sometimes you're mindful and sometimes you're not, that those intentions of mindfulness start to manifest as a kind of slope towards greater and greater clarity. You might within any day be clear and then unclear. Clear, then unclear. But as the days go on, probably you've seen more and more refinement of attention so that you're able to see things on a subtler level now than you were, than was possible five or six days ago. Have, have you noticed that? Even though you might come to the next sitting and be on Mars for all intents and purposes, you know, there is something that keeps on unfolding in the direction of greater and greater clarity. So it's, it's not a linear process, but the slope is moving in that direction. Now, intention, just want to clarify, intention is different than expectation. Intention is different than goal because you don't have any control over what's going on within any particular moment. So if you come down to the sitting and say, may I be as present as I can and you're all over the map, don't get discouraged. It's a real comfort, 
I have found in my own practice to realize that you have no control over how mindful or concentrated you are. Now that might seem like a discouraging thought, but actually when you think about it, if that's really the case, then you don't have to blame yourself when you're not concentrated. You don't have to blame yourself for not being mindful. The key, again, is having the intention to be present, making the effort as sincerely as you can to be present. That's your end of the deal. It doesn't happen on your timetable. You can let go of the report card because anytime you're sitting there seeing if it's working, you can only either pass or fail. Okay, I'm being mindful. That's the way it's supposed to be. And anything else, and you've blown it. It's impossible to measure up to our ideals of great yogihood. How can we? Everything is impermanent, so no matter where you are, how good it gets, it's not going to last. Enjoy it while it's here. Be very mindful of it while it's here. And then letting go gracefully and not feeling that you've blown it when things change. Expectation comes from the head. I should be this way. But intention really comes from the heart. Intention is just having that sincerity, that honest commitment to, to fulfill your, your vision, and then surrendering to whatever is here. Intention also is a protection. When we get very discouraged, especially when we blame ourselves or take responsibility for how things are going, really intention is a source of refuge. It can carry us through our confusion because when we truly connect with it, there's a kind of purity of heart that can be felt. I remember being around um, His Holiness, the, the Dalai Lama, some years ago, and he was asked, how do you deal with all the, the suffering around you and the suffering that you see your, your people go through, one after another coming to him in, in Dharamsala who made the trek and, and been in torture and, and awful things that they, that they report to him. How do you deal with, with all of, of that? How can you bear it? And he said... Uh, My sincere motivation is my protection. This is what I come back to. My sincere intention. And then the next day somebody asked him, how do do you deal with all the fear? Because he had said that sometimes he gets afraid too and he sees fear all around him. How do you work with all that fear? And he said, my sincere motivation is my protection. It really is a source of great comfort when you get confused to come back to that innocence and that um, childlike purity of heart that keeps you here. There's something that keeps you coming back to the cushion over and over, even if it is one insult after another, as we said a few nights ago. What is it that keeps bringing you back? There's something quite strong. It's so strong, it's stronger than all the, the doubt it's stronger than all the, the fear. It's stronger than all the, the dukkha that you go through that keeps pulling you back and honing in on the truth. That purity of heart, this is your protection. And that purity of heart is really coming from an intention to wake up. A few years ago, uh, I um, went to visit Mother Mira. Uh, I was on my way, actually, was on my way to that, that conference in Dharamsala. 
and some friends had told me I was, I was uh, stopping in Frankfurt, the, the plane was stopping in Frankfurt, and they, uh, they said, oh, you should definitely check out Mother Mira, who's this Indian uh, saint and uh, really wise, loving being. Just have her picture and you can see the purity in, uh, in her face and very inspiring and some friends were very moved by, by her. So I went to, um, went to see her and uh, uh, you get, uh, she sees one person after another. You come up and uh, you sit in front of her and uh, then you put your head down and she does something to your head, un- untying the karmic knots or I think it's, it's explained and, and she looks, looks at you and looks in your eyes, you know, and you get about 45 seconds to do that. That's the process. And one after another, you go into, there's a, an on-deck uh, chair, and then it's your turn, and then you go. And I, first time I, uh, I went there, and I was told, oh, be really clear on what you, uh, what's in your heart and what you ask for, because she can grant you the boon of um, fulfilling your, your wishes. So I thought, okay, pretty far out. I didn't, I wanted to, I didn't want to go up right away and just kind of have any random thought in my mind as she's granting me my, my wishes. I thought I'd just check it out and take my time and just see the whole process. And I saw, okay, I got 45 seconds to, to do that. And what do I want? What do I really want? And after about, oh, an hour and a half of other people going up, uh, I just kept on reflecting what I really want, what really, if if a genie could come and grant you your wish, what would you go for? Right? Not an ice cream cone, right? You want to go for the highest kind of happiness. And uh, I got in touch with things that I really wanted, and uh, they have been a protection for me. What I, what I got in touch with in front of her, that... Uh, that experience for years, that's my protection. And I remind myself of, of wanting to have a, a, a purity of heart, wanting to, to serve as best I can. And it's been a great source of, of comfort to just get clear on my highest intention. And there's a kind of protection that comes in that moment. And I would really um, suggest and encourage you to get clear on what your highest intentions are. And if you can crystallize it into a, a phrase or two, use it as a source of protection and comfort. We can wake up in any moment when we see the truth, when we get clear on a possibility, just like Angulimala when we did that sutta the other day, he saw the error of his ways. And as soon as he saw the light, as soon as he had that epiphany, his whole life was transformed because he had another intention. When we set a wholesome intention, oftentimes it comes after some real dukkha. We are compelled to wake up because life affects us so deeply that we can't pretend what really matters. Uh, we can't pretend that we can ignore what really matters. And we, we wake up. In one moment of truth, we can transform our intention. And I wanted to, to share with you a couple of, of stories of, of people radically transforming their intention leading to, um, to great happiness. And this is a book that some of you uh, have heard me talk about, How We Choose to Be Happy, about these 230-some-odd people that these authors uh, interviewed who were identified as extremely happy people. And uh, they all had nine common choices that, that, they, um, that they had that seemed to bring great happiness to their life. And the first choice that they talk about in the group, in the book, is the intention 
to be happy. Now, many of us don't have that intention. Maybe not us. Many people don't have that intention. It doesn't occur to, to a whole lot of people. We have the intention to be successful, to be loved, to be recognized, to do okay in life, to be rich. But when you incline the mind towards happiness, then everything follows from that. And this is the first of these choices. There's a, there's a, uh, I'll read the Swedish proverb that talks about intention. Those who wish to sing always find a song. But there, I want to read to you two stories. One about this woman, Maddie, who uh, was um, raised by, in an affluent uh, family, but uh, the father had abandoned the family and the mother uh, became, uh, very, uh, became an alcoholic and violent and very disturbed. <clears throat> Maddie and Carl, her brother, along with their disturbed mother, who often didn't leave the house for days on end, Miles from the nearest market, they lived on peanut butter and tried to stay out of their mother's way. This is her talking. My brother and I were usually by ourselves all day long. On school days, the bus dropped us off to a quiet and foreboding house. Some days we would hardly see our mother at all. We were so unhappy, almost numb. I knew the kids at school were different from us. I wanted to be like them. They were relaxed, they laughed and joked and seemed to, be, to really enjoy their days. This was mysterious to me at the time. Then one day I said to myself, I'm going to be happy, just like the other kids. I remember telling Carl I had it all figured out. Maddie could see that her mother was miserable compared to other mothers she knew. She reasoned that the only way to be happy was to do exactly the opposite of what her mother did. She came up with an ingenious plan to learn in reverse. This is her talking. One day, sitting on the steps outside the vacant servants' quarters where we would, could hide out, Carl and I made a pact. We promised each other that we would find new ways to be happy every day, and each time we did, whether it was playing a new game, telling a joke, or having a good laugh, we would be different from her. This was the moment that will be etched in my memory forever. Carl and I still talk about it as the liberating moment in our childhood. And it goes on to say just what an incredible person she is and how everybody just being around her is so uplifted. That was a moment that she set her intention a different way. There's one other incredible story. This woman, Adele. As one of our first interviewers, Adele showed us early on that happy people don't necessarily live charmed lives. In 1991, she experienced an unusually tragic set of losses. Her life unraveled as the losses began to pile up. This is her talking. In one horrible 24-month period, my life evaporated. I lost everything. My house burned down to the ground. This is the Oakland fire leaving me with nothing, no clothes, photos, furniture, no material reminder of my previous life. During that time, both of my parents died unexpectedly. My husband left me for a younger woman at the same time that my restaurant went bankrupt. My best friend moved to Seattle. Even the dog died. You have to laugh almost, like the enormity of it, right? Everything in Adele's life disappeared, and she had to make decisions about how to go on. But without establishing some form of intention, she would be immobilized. What was her intention? I had nothing. I was so filled with grief, I thought maybe God was somehow preparing me to die. Everything was gone. Maybe this was some monumental lesson in letting go and that I should let my life go too. 
But as my initial shock began to clear, a feeling that I wanted to live outweighed all of my thoughts about death. I began to see there was hope among the ashes. There was one big opportunity. I had a clean slate. As long as I had to start over and create a whole new life, I was going to create a happy one. I wanted to feel whole. I was sure that I wanted to embrace everything in life, the good and the bad. I wanted a feeling of contentment and to feel rested and gentle. I wanted to feel unafraid, to feel that I could handle anything that came my way. And I wanted to feel this way for the rest of my life in spite of my grief. I could see, in spite of my grief, I could see that all this added up to happiness for a lifetime. And again, it goes on through her process of grieving and how she, again, is one of these incredibly inspiring, happy people that just makes everybody around her happy. I remember in my own life, um, first hearing the teachings, first hearing Joseph in 1974, a real mess of neuroses called me and hearing the possibility and seeing this guy who knew something that I wanted to know and that he said, you can do it. And I remember being so incredibly inspired at the possibility of not being a slave to my neurotic thought patterns, that that intention just led me on. <clears throat> and it's still leading me on. It's the, there's, there's plenty more to go. But that was the turning point in my life. And I would bet that every one of us can point to a moment like that, where we heard the Dharma, where we heard the truth, and we said, yes, this is possible, and I'm going for it. So just to remember coming back to that place, it's never too late, even if you stray for quite a while, it's never too late to remember your intention and to start again. And what I also wanted to, to do, pointing to this fact that it's never too late, is uh, share with you a little bit about the Buddha and his advice to his son. This is another sutta in the Majjhima. It's uh, advice to Rahula. And actually, it's very much like um, Sylvia's story. I told her the other day after she told the, the Thanksgiving story, I think this during Thanksgiving, of Harrison and the cookie and holding it over, and should I drop it or not drop it? And, uh, and his mom saying, would that be a good idea or not a good idea? Well, the Buddha had exactly that uh, exchange with his son, Rahula, when Rahula was seven years old. And that's supposedly when the, um, when the discourse uh, dates to. Rahula... Uh, the Buddha says, what do you think, Rahula? What is the purpose of a mirror? For the purpose of reflection, venerable sir. So too, Rahula, an action with the body should be done after repeated reflection. An action by speech should be done after repeated reflection. An action by mind should be done after repeated reflection. Rahula, when you wish to do an action with body, speech, or mind, you should reflect thus, would this action that I wish to do lead to my own affliction or to the affliction of others or to the affliction of both? It's kind of remembering what he came in touch with on his own. Is it an unwholesome action with painful consequences or painful results? Is it a wholesome action with unpainful consequences, pleasant consequences, and pleasant results? Then act accordingly. And then he goes on to say, sometimes you might feel an impulse to do something or say something 
or dwell on something in your mind. As you feel that impulse, reflect, is this going to be pleasant, leading to happiness, or unpleasant, leading to suffering? Act accordingly. Then he goes on to say, sometimes you might be in the middle of the thought, or the speech, or the action. And if you can, remember to ask yourself, is this leading to more suffering or more happiness? And act accordingly. And then he says, sometimes you might not realize it until it's over. That whole train of thought, that whole um, monologue that you laid on to somebody, or that unskillful action that you did, at that point, start right then and reflect, was that useful? Was that leading to more happiness? Or was that leading to more suffering? And if you realize that it led to suffering, then commit to doing it a different way in the future. If you realize upon reflection that it leads to happiness, then continue doing it. So it's never too late. If you beat yourself up for something that you've done or said in your past, all you're doing is reinforcing that contraction and confusion and not using what he called wise reflection, seeing that there's another way and intending to develop the more wholesome uh, choice. Because what intention does is it gives us choice. Until we see our intention, we are blind by our habit patterns. But when when we do see our intention, we can have choice whether to act on things. Suppose you're doing walking meditation and you've got this tremendous urge to look up at who's passing by you. You ever get that feeling? (laughs) Who is that? Is that the person that I kind of think is interesting? And you find yourself, before you know it, looking at them. How did that happen? See if you can hang out with the intention before you make the action. I know it might feel like you're going to die if you don't look up. Mm. But just notice what happens as it comes and goes. what, What you find is after five seconds, it's completely gone. Maybe 10 seconds. <laughs> but it's gone after a little while. And you don't keep on thinking, who was that person? Boom, on to the next moment. The same way with, uh, say, going for a cup of tea or a break. Now, there might be times that it's absolutely the most skillful thing you can do to go for a cup of tea. If you feel the walls are closing in and you just need some space. But if it's, you know, the fourth or fifth cup of tea for the afternoon, there might be, you know, something that you need to look at. So you might just, before you change your activity, just ask, oh, is this supportive of my practice? You know, like when you were, when you were a kid in, in school and you raise your hand to go to the bathroom and, they, and the teacher sometimes would say, is this trip necessary? You know? Just asking, is this trip is this trip necessary? Yeah. Or you get up from a sitting, the bell rings, and there you are in the middle of a real peaceful and present sitting. Notice why you're getting up. Not that it's bad or good either way, but get in touch with your intention before the action. You might realize, oh, it feels quite quite good to sit here. I'm really here. Let's stay with this. Or if you're doing the walking meditation, stay with the walking until there's a reason to change the sitting to to the sitting or to the next activity. So starting to look at those intentions, particularly as you go through the day around changing uh, activities, you start to give yourself some choice. 
And if you can have the intention as you're practicing as well to cultivate a kindness in your spirit, in your practice, that also can give you some choice how you relate to each moment of experience. If you can remember as you start to beat yourself up, oh, wait a second, maybe I'll choose another way. Just noticing the intention at that aspect of practice too. <clears throat> so it's, it's never too late to wake up and also you can notice the subtleties before thought and impulse give rise to activity. As you get in touch with your own purity and sincerity of heart, that intention to wake up becomes stronger and stronger. That commitment to the truth starts to manifest. And then as it becomes stronger and it manifests, the most beautiful of all intentions arises in practice. And that's the intention that comes from realizing you're not practicing only for yourself. You're practicing for everyone. And when that suffuses your practice, it gives a whole other breadth and dimension and inspiration to practice. This is the intention of developing that bodhicitta, that enlightened heart. This is from uh, Yoshal Kempo. He says, there's a Tibetan saying that everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. This indicates the significance in every moment of the possibility of cultivating altruistic, selfless intention, bodhicitta. The very heart essence of Buddha Dharma is this intention to benefit others. Whatever else we might do is secondary to that. If we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude and intention, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, transformed, and become beneficial to others through contact with that good heart which we strive to embody. Every moment of practice, you are planting seeds one way or another. Every moment that you're mindful, every moment that you come from that sincere intention to wake up, you are planting those seeds of sincerity and purity. And as long as you're facing in that direction, the goal will be attained sooner or later, but it will be attained. I just want to close with this quote from the Scottish Himalayan expedition on the power of commitment and intention. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness, concerning all acts of initiative and creation there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That is that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no person could have dreamt would have come their way. I've learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets, whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius power, and magic in it. So let's sit for a moment.
thank you for your attention. So it's, uh, it's almost 10 after 8. Once again, let's, um, let's have the bell rung at 8.45, and we'll come back in uh, 40 minutes for the last sitting and chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.